a few months after Jesus' resurrection, two of his followers, Peter and John, are on their way to the temple to pray. A, a beggar who's sitting on the side of the road calls out to them for money. It's obvious from the way that he's lying there that something is wrong with his legs. And Peter stops and he says to him, friend, I don't have any money, but what I do have I'll share. And then he extends his hand to him and says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. <laughs> well, the sight of a grown man shouting and weeping and laughing and leaping all over the temple causes such a commotion that the authorities show up to investigate. And faster than you can say kangaroo court, they slap some cuffs off Peter and John and haul them off to jail. After a night of sleeping on a cold, hard floor, Peter and John find themselves dragged in to be bullied and threatened by some of the city's most prominent leaders. And if you think these threats are empty, you should recall that this same group of men got Jesus executed just a few weeks ago. Eventually, Peter and James are released with the threat of de death hanging over their heads if they so much as mention Jesus' name again. They go back to their friends of the church to explain to them what happened. And the response of the church to this story they tell is described in Acts chapter 2. And let me read that response to you. Acts 4, beginning in verse 23. After their release, Peter and John returned to the brothers and sisters and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said. They listened and then lifted their voices in unison to God. They said, Master, you are the one who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You were the one who spoke by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers gathered as one against the Lord and against his Christ. Indeed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and Israelites, did gather in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power and plan had determined would happen. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with complete confidence. Stretch out your hand to bring healing and enable signs and wonders to be performed through the name of Jesus, your holy servant. After they prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking God's word with confidence. Some of us at Trinity just this week completed an eight-week study of the book of Acts. Now, of all of the stories of the early church that we've explored over the last eight weeks, this is the moment in the book of Acts I can't get out of my head. The experience of James and John here is just the first in this long pattern of arrests and imprisonments and beatings and banishments and sometimes even deaths among the early Christians. But what really stands out to me about the church's response here is what isn't there at all. No one in this story expresses great shock, like, 
How could this terrible thing have happened? And to Peter and John of all the good people. Nobody prays what I know I would have been praying in this situation. God, save them and all of us from future suffering like this. Please, God, don't let any more bad things happen. Instead, they pray, God, see the trouble facing us and enable us to show up to it with courage. And God, keep doing all the stuff in the midst of it that will cause us to have a chance to tell people about how great Jesus really is. I mean, this prayer apparently resonates so deeply with the frequency of heaven that the ground beneath, begins to shake beneath them as they pray. I mean, reading Acts, it quickly becomes clear that the expectations the early Christians had toward life are pretty different from our own. No one is particularly surprised by famines or shipwrecks or riots because in many ways, suffering is their default expectation. For us, on the other hand, suffering seems to strike as this constant source of surprise and bewilderment. I mean, one of my family members just got better. How could another one be sick? Well, we just got ahead financially. How could we be so unlucky as to take another hit? I mean, just as one part of life starts going right, it seems like another part starts going wrong. A lot of us spend quite a bit of our time outraged or confused and wondering, why me? I mean, I can tell you for certain that most of the prayers that I've ever prayed, either on my own or with other Christians, involved some version of the prayer Deliver us, God, from suffering. So, what's the deal with the early church? It's not that they never prayed for rescue. When Peter is arrested again, later in Acts, they pray really hard to get him out. But still, the behavior of these early Christians is often pretty strange. At one time, a group of Christians senses that the Holy Spirit is telling them, if the Apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem, trouble and hardship will await him. Now, most of us would take this as a helpful warning from God to stay away from Jerusalem. But Paul simply takes this as useful info about what's around the bend. Not so he can avoid it, but so he can actually prepare himself for the hard thing that's going to come next. Now, I think the secret to the early Christians' attitude is their understanding of where we all stand in the movement of history. Jesus' resurrection is the first glimpse of this new world God is bringing, where darkness and sighing flee and pain and mourning come to an end. But while that new world is taking shape, we aren't living in it yet. We live in the hope and the promise of it, visible in Jesus' resurrected body. But first we have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. And nobody, nobody's trip through this valley is going to be easy. Because no matter what path you take, there are going to be lions and cold nights and thorns in your side. I was talking recently to a friend of mine who works as a Christian therapist. 
And we were talking about everything happening in the world right now, and I asked her what counsel she thought we all most needed to hear at this time. And she said to me, let go of your resistance to pain or your thought that it shouldn't be there. Only then can you accept reality and deal with it as it is. Well, let me explain what she meant. There is no good to be done by glorifying suffering. Christianity's answer to suffering is not to say, lie down and wallow in it. I mean, far from it. Where we can take action to reduce unnecessary suffering in our own lives and the lives of others, we absolutely should do it. I mean, in the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul had a card to play to get out of a beating, he played that card. And what some of us maybe need most to hear right now is a call to action. There's no virtue in going hungry when there's food out there to be had. The last thing Christian discipleship requires is passivity in the face of suffering. If there is something that you can do within the bounds of faithfulness to Jesus to make this stretch of the valley a little bit brighter for you and for others, then for heaven's sake, I mean literally for heaven's sake, go and do it. But here's the thing. There is a whole lot of suffering in this valley that you can simply do nothing about. Oh, you can attempt to resist it, and most of us do. What we do our best, Gandalf impression, and say to pain, you shall not pass. But the pain keeps right on coming. We try to dodge it, we try to fight it. But it's sort of like dodging and fighting ocean waves. No matter how much you object to the injustice of it all, the waves just keep on coming. And all you get for all that dodging and fighting and denying is more and more exhaustion. Have you ever observed a swimming class for toddlers? I mean, one of the first things they teach kids in swimming lessons in the interest of safety is that if you find yourself in deep water and really struggling, uh, the best thing you can do is just flip over and lie in your black. And flailing around, fighting the water, it only takes you under faster. But if you just relax a little and let the water carry you, you'll find you're able to at least catch some deep breaths. You're not out of trouble, but you will be able to hang on for a little while. I mean, this is what my friend is talking about when she advises that we need to let go of our resistance to pain or our thoughts that it shouldn't be there. This is what the early church figured out that allowed them to live patiently and even joyfully in the face of so many troubles. They stopped fighting the water. They stopped boxing with the waves. They stopped questioning, why me or why doesn't God? They stopped looking at suffering as something to defeat. They accepted that the storm is the state of the world right now. And that because of that, all of them were going to take more than their just share of hits by the waves. And having accepted this, having accepted some level of suffering as inevitable for now, having just relaxed into it a little, 
they were able to finally direct their energy much more helpfully. Instead of fighting the storm, they began to manage it. They could ask, is there anything I could do to make this storm more bearable for myself and others? Is there anything that, I, that might help me to keep my head above the water? Is there anything I could do that might help my neighbor keep their head up for a little longer? Is there anything we might do together that could increase our stamina and our endurance? Instead of pretending that the force of death could somehow be denied, the early Christians acknowledged that death is having a moment. The sea swallows up things that really are losses. The quickest route to joy is not to go around the grief, but to go through it. They grieved and they held on to hope that just like the prophet Jonah once went underwater, but was swallowed by a fish and three days, brought back to, three days later brought to land. Um, the storm may swallow much, but God can still safely carry us and what is lost to a safe shore on the other side. Instead of endlessly, constantly praying for rescue, the early Christians dared to trust that the long-term outcome was in hand and that they were therefore free to pray, let's say, more creatively. And sooner or later, God would end the storm. They took that for granted. So now, they could lean back in the waves and they could pray for other things. They prayed for courage. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for opportunities. They prayed to spot other people flailing in the water who they could offer the hope of a better future. So here's what I would say to all of you and to myself this morning. There are some storms that we cannot overcome. And if you're in one of those storms right now, this might be the moment for you to stop fighting the waves. Lean back a little. Trust that your body is better able, you to, care, to, able to carry you through the tumult than you think. And once you've caught your breath a little, ask yourself a few good questions. I mean, what do I need to grieve in this storm and to let go? Is there anything I can do that might make bearing this storm a little more tolerable? Then turn your head to the side and see the people bobbing next to you and ask yourself if there's anything you can do to help them stay afloat. Pray for opportunities. Pray for confidence. Pray that, that the Spirit moves in such a way that even out here in the tossing sea, the mercy of God would be known. And most of all, know that despite what it feels, this storm really isn't forever. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away. And the sea... It was no more. Let's pray together. 
God, there are so many storms that surround us collectively and individually. We pray that if in the midst of these storms there are things that we can do, concrete things to relieve the burden, relieve the suffering, to change the nature of the storm, that you would give us the wisdom and the insight and the courage to know what to do. Lord, but we also recognize there is so much in the storm. There are so many kinds of storms that we cannot change, we can only endure. So in that, we pray for your spirit filling us with the courage needed for perseverance. We pray for deep breaths of your life-giving air. We pray for boldness to meet the challenges of the moment. We pray that you would act in ways that give us so many reasons, so many excuses to talk about Jesus and to give you glory. Lord, use this storm as you use all things to bring honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.